Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. This week, we're examining the ongoing conflict in Yemen, which has resulted in what many have referred to as the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Now, the present conflict has its roots in the political aftermath of the 2011 Yemeni revolution, which was part of the broader Arab Spring protests. The conflict also has geopolitical considerations, with Saudi Arabia and Iran providing support to opposing sides as part of their larger proxy war for influence in the Middle East. And the chaos has also bolstered terrorist organizations, as fighters from Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIL affiliates have seized southern parts of the country and have stepped up their attacks. Now, as with most conflicts, it is the population at large that is suffering the most. And the recent blockade on humanitarian assistance has only exacerbated the impacts of famine and cholera in the country. To unpack the conflict in Yemen, I sat down with Hamza Haddad and Alexandra Dufour, graduate students at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, who specialize in the Middle East and conflicts in the region. Alexandra, Hamza, thank you so much for coming into the studio and joining us this evening on Policy Talks. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So just to set the stage, um, I was hoping you could give us a sense in terms of background of uh, how we got to this point in Yemen. Okay, so first off, Yemen is one of the poorest or the poorest country in the Middle East, but has the second biggest population in the Gulf region. Um, right after Saudi Arabia with around 26 million people. It's divided in three different zones. Um, the north region where the most of the fighting is occurring right now and the Shia Houthi are. Uh, the south region where the Sunni secessionist movement is happening and the Hadramaut Desert in the east where the quote-unquote tribes are living right now. And there's also the dynamic of terrorism with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as you mentioned yourself. Historically, uh, Yemen has always been divided between north and south. It used to be two different countries. Um, however, since the collapse of the USSR um, in the 90s, basically, there was the unification of Yemen, um, which was quickly followed by a civil war in 1994. And the north won the war with Ali Abdullah Saleh as the uh, president. And the vice president was a secessionist from the south, um, which became prime minister eventually, uh, in 1994, and now he's the president of Yemen. Um, since the end of the civil war, however, it's important to note that the South has been under complete domination by the North. Um, the army officials from the South was d were discharged, uh, lands that belonged to South and their farmers were relocated to Northern businessmen, etc., and eventually led in uh, the mid-2000 to uh, different nonviolent movements against the Salah's government, and which were basically violently repressed by the army. However, what was happening in the south there was also a lot happening in the now in the north so ba basically like from 2004 to 2010 um there were six wars fought between the houthi and the sally's um, general people's congress which is the current party in power right now um so during those six wars basically the government repressed the houthis which um the Houthis had political and social claims. They wanted more inclusion in the power because they were repressed by Saleh, which is also a Zaidi, which was quite interesting. And I'm sure Hamza has a lot to say about that. Yeah, it's also important to note that Ali Abdullah Saleh was um, the president of uh, the Yemen Arab Republic, also known as North Yemen. Uh, he became president in 1978 at the age of 31. 
Um, so he's been in power for many decades, which led us to the Arab Spring, where you know you saw movements across the Middle East wanting to you know get rid of these authoritarian leaders. Um, Yemen was no different, having had one for three decades, right? Um, he was often sometimes you know he championed himself as you know the guy who could keep, leave, uh, keep Yemen intact after the unification, despite many civil wars. So he was he was very tactful in his leadership on who to play against who. And that didn't change even after, you know, he formally left power due to the Arab Spring. So at one point, you know, this looked like a, a success story. You know, we, we got rid of another authoritarian leader. But when he left, you know, he didn't exactly full power. He still had very, you know, majority of the command on the military, um, still very influential. And, you know, you started seeing him join, eventually join uh, the Houthi uh, rebels, who, you know, he fought many wars against. So you could see how opportunistic he was, which kind of led us to, you know, further conflict within Yemen. It wasn't going to be a, uh, a smooth road from the Arab Spring, like most of the countries other than Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned uh, in the introduction for this episode the fact that not only is this a civil conflict, but there are international actors involved on, on opposing sides. And there seems to be, Yemen seems to be, uh, an example of this greater power struggle between Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, for influence in the Middle East. Can you walk us through a little bit uh, of how that happened, and 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 are the uh, are the relationships between the opposing sides in Yemen uh, with Saudi Arabia in Iran um, are those along religious lines? Are those along political lines? Um, are they intertwined? What are some of the reasons for why different sides have been chosen by international actors? Right. Well, just like Alexander said, you know, the countries have been historically divided. So that's there's a division there. But currently what we see now, it's obvious that, you know, there's a lot of proxy war going on through between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, But I think sometimes it is overplayed, but it is uh, a main factor behind Saudi um, uh, moves behind all of this. because like Alexander said, the, the Houthi rebels are considered uh, Shia, just like Iran is. But it's important to note that there are different sect of Shia. They're not even the second largest, they're the third largest. And um, so there's Zaidi Shia, and they, they're only populated in Yemen. And Yemen is pretty landlocked. You know, they're, they're, uh, they neighbor Saudi Arabia in the north, Oman in the, on the east. But then, you know, you've got the, you've got the sea. So, it's, um, so they don't have much to offer uh, regional powers like like uh, Iran, they're far from Iran. They're not even the exact same Shia. Um, but that's important to note because basically that's where Saudi Arabia comes into play. They've been, they've used the the sectarian identity of the Houthis as for their for their um, actions in the country. And basically, what kind of started that was Iran was growing in power. They saw that they seemed to have a grasp on Syria. Um, they seem to have a grasp on other areas in the country like Lebanon, Iraq. So they saw this as, you know, we can't lose Yemen. And that's where the regional powers come into play. And it's clearly been a very strong drive behind the conflict um, since 2015. How do other actors in the Middle East fall in with what's happening in Yemen? Uh, is there a lot of um, other other involvement from countries beyond Saudi Arabia and Iran? Yeah, so there is in the so Saudi created this coalition when they started the war in 2015 it had the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and basically when the dispute between Qatar and Saudi Arabia recently happened Qatar got cut off but like the interesting point about this aspect is the United Arab Emirates who's been in line with uh, Saudi this whole time they kind of back their own they kind of back the 
the secessionist movement in the South where Saudi Arabia kind of backs the uh, internationally recognized government uh, of Yemen. But recently we saw there's some dispute between them now. So it's kind of like this, you're seeing different fronts now. It's not so uh, left and right. You're seeing different fracturing, which kind of show the the regional influences. But it is important to note Saudi and United Arab Emirates have very good relationships with one another. So, but you know, there's it's not it's not harmonious. In in preparing for this episode, I I had to, um, I have to admit that uh, it wasn't something that I knew a lot about, and that got me thinking. Is this is this what's happening in Yemen? Given that it's been happening, I mean, you could go as as Alexandra, as you mentioned, you can go far back to to see kind of the roots of this. But even since the Arab Spring, this has been been ongoing in Yemen, and we're approaching now seven seven years since the Arab Spring. I get the sense that this isn't covered in the media as much as as similar situations or humanitarian crises. Um, do you have a theory of why that might be? I think there's just not much interest in Yemen in general. Like it's not a research, a resource-rich country at all, and it's in a stronghold of Saudi Arabia, and it's uh, has always been. The only reason why there's a tension now is because of the huge humanitarian crisis it basically provoked, and the Saudi-led coalition provoked. Um, I don't know if there's an actual theory behind it or not, or if it's mostly just by there. There's just no interest at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just their like uh, we were talking about their geographic location. It's not it's not as strategic as as Iraq, as Syria. That's mm-hmm. one point. Like even when we talk about Iran and their influence, they they're not really that active. And the more Saudi became involved, it is kind of counterintuitive. They said, you know, we want to be involved in Yemen to counter Iran. But if anything, their involvement in in, in Yemen increased Iranian involvement. But the Iranians don't put as much effort as they do in Lebanon and Syria as they do in Yemen because there's not that much to win for them. And again, so it it could be also a PR game for Saudi. They wanted to, you know, go in and have a have a victory in one country where they might be losing out in others. But it's definitely I mean, I know Alexandra knows a lot about the history of Yemen, but you know, they're also they haven't been very uh, a, a country where, you know, you're champion, like, you know, in Iraq and Syria, you know, you've had the Ottoman Empire champion them before that, different empires, where in Yemen they've always been kind of secluded due to distance. I find that particularly troubling given that uh, when the media has covered this, uh, there's been uh, a common term that's been used is that the situation in, in Yemen is the the world's largest or the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Could you give us a sense of, of what exactly is happening from a humanitarian perspective or why that's being labeled as the, the world's largest? So since the Saudi intervention in March 2015, there's been a naval blockade. So basically no humanitarian assistance is getting in the country or almost none uh, at the moment. Saudi Arabia has been playing on it and opening the port uh, once in a while. However, more than 80% of the population is in need of humanitarian assistance. Around 8 million people are a step away from fam- famine. Um, more than 10,000 people have died in the conflict, 40,000 are wounded, and even like Doctors Without Borders, which were in the country when the conflict happened, had to um, had to get out and then slowly got back into it because of the Saudi bombing, which was pretty indiscriminate, and they were targeting health facilities, which is really not helping the case. And also there's a million cases of cholera declared in the country right a now. A million. I can't even I I know in Haiti after the earthquake cholera was a was a big issue but it, I don't think it even approached 
Um, well, I, actually, I don't know the figures for, for, for cholera in Haiti. But regardless, uh, I remember that being a big story, so I'm surprised. Um, is cholera, is it right to say that, that currently uh, the situation in Yemen is, is really the only cholera outbreak that, that's ongoing? I believe so. Yeah. So that's it's kind of troubling. Like you said, we all knew when it happened in Haiti because it's such a you mm-hmm. know it's it's not something that happens often. So when it does, it's very concerning, and we're only speaking about it now. And you know, we were talking about why Yemen might not be attractive, but that shouldn't be any reason why we, it's taken us this long to discuss Yemen and look for solutions because it's been going on for a while. And it's it's I wish I had an answer to why you know it's just only now we're discussing it. What about the Implications for terrorism or the, the, the presence of terrorism in, in Yemen. What can you tell me about that? Well, what we know is that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has been um, in Yemen, mostly in the desert, the Hadramaut Desert, since the early 2000, and it has just been growing since. Um, Daesh has also established himself, uh, itself there and claimed a couple of attacks in the capital more recently. Mm-hmm. And when we, sorry, just uh, when we say Daesh, we're... That's just another term for the Islamic State, correct? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of concerning. We're seeing, you know, these power vacuums in Yemen because of so many different groups that these terrorist organizations are able to breed. And, you know, that should be a concern for the coalition against ISIS because, you know, we've been hearing so well how we're doing in Iraq and Syria of defeating them, but no talk about them in Yemen, which they're present. And it's also important to note that the United States have been implicated in the fight against terrorism in Yemen since uh, post 9-11. However, it was um, in a collaboration with Sally's government. And now that Sally's gone, then what is done about it? Excellent segue. Um, We're going to take a a quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about international actors like the United States and Canada and what can be done to address the situation that's happening in Yemen. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Welcome back to Policy Talks and our episode on the situation in Yemen. So in the first half of the episode, uh, Alexandra, Hamza, and I discussed uh, the origins and the current state of what's happening in Yemen. Uh, And building on that, we then explored what can be done to address the growing crisis in the country. So before the break, we were talking about what is currently happening in Yemen uh, and some of the considerations from a humanitarian perspective as well as a, as a terrorism perspective. Uh, that obviously begs the question, uh, and this is of course a policy podcast, from a policy perspective, what can international actors like the US or Canada uh, or the UK, what what is being done to address this or what should be done to address the situation in Yemen? Right, so um, it's a very important to know. You know, we noted earlier, Iran and Saudi are both involved, but Saudi Arabia is more involved, and 
the one positive aspect I can look at it from the West perspective is we got good relations with Saudi Arabia, so we can have a little more pressure on them to help resolve this issue because uh, I think you got to resolve the regional aspect before you can even uh, resolve it domestically in Yemen. So what, you know, nations like the United States and Canada can do is pressure Saudi to help them because they're kind of like one of the only access points to Yemen, right? To ease up on blockades, ease up on, you know, airstrikes on these humanitarian places. Um, So one thing Canada can do is obviously pressure Saudi Arabia and another thing we can do is also we're sort of doing it now now that we've paused all arms sales to Saudi Arabia I mean in 2016 we were the second largest arms sale to Saudi Arabia with our uh, 15 billion dollar arms sale so that's gone through despite you know the outcry of selling arms to a human rights abuser the fact that we've stopped is a positive um, movement in our policy and we could we should be continuing to be a little more aggressive you know so we've kind of stopped selling arms to saudi but now we need to kind of push them to kind of stop doing what they're doing in yemen and i know canada's you know we've recently increased our humanitarian assistance to yemen for 65 million dollars as of march uh 2017 we can definitely be doing a lot more especially when we consider we've made billions off arms sales to saudi a couple of millions isn't much but is there any good in increasing humanitarian assistance to Yemen if part of the problem is that none of that assistance is really getting in with the blockade or that it's not going to the right places? Is there anything that that we can do on our end to kind of alleviate that or help to, to, to remove the blockade? Well, the blockade is being done by Saudi Arabia. So as Hamza said, if we can put pressure on them to open up the borders and to open up the aid and support, then of course that will very much be helpful also if we can pressure them not to indiscriminately target health services and health facilities in the country then definitely that would be helpful what's the reasoning behind the the blockade to begin with why why humanitarian assistance is supposed to be uh apolitical uh there are there are founding humanitarian principles um that would prevent humanitarian assistance from from choosing one side over another what's why would saudi arabia want to block humanitarian assistance into the country again you know most of the population is under houthi rebel uh administration so that's one area again they want to stop the houthis from taking over controlling so what's one of the strongest thing basically choke them into submission is kind of what they've been trying to do um which is what led us to the to this crisis so I think, you know, it's very important. We got to, fr- before we start throwing money, it is important to know how we're going to get it there. But again, like I said, we have a very clear channel. Um, and, you know, we can see, we can see where in the region, when, when there is consensus on a solution, we can get there. Again, Iraq, for just to bring an example, there's a consensus between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. We've been able to defeat ISIS and, you know, defy expectations of when to defeat it. You know, you've got now relations between the Iraqi government, Saudi, Iran, United States. So I think consensus is very important. And that's one way we can start doing it. I mean, it's not easy. It took many years in Iraq before Saudi could even, um, you know, restart their their diplomatic ties. And I think it's going to be even more difficult to, to even establish ties between the Houthis and the Saudis. But I think that's where they can help the, the the groups that they back in Yemen to at least start a process there. And also Saudi Arabia is blocking aid and support because it's afraid that Iran is going to send uh, military help or support to the Houthis right now. 
So of course, that's their way of suffocating them by preventing them from external support, which is basically the only support because nobody else is backing the Houthis. So you you mentioned specifically Canada and our relationship to Saudi Arabia in terms of arms deals and what perhaps Canada can do to leverage that relationship. I'm curious, speaking more broadly in the international community, what is the United Nations doing right now? What's their position on this? Is there any movement for more of a uh, a multilateral approach to addressing what's happening in Yemen? So there were peace talks in 2014, 2015, and also like the UN helped to have Saleh resigned in 2012, which was a victory in itself. However, the transitional government that they helped put in place with the Hadi government right now is clearly not working. It's very weak. And all the peace talks that they've had have failed. Um, the most recent was in Kuwait in 2016. And there have been talks about starting another one soon that Kuwait is ready. Um, however, there's no compromise made on neither parties. So it, it would be very hard for that. One um, possible alternative for that would be to bring in Oman much more than it is uh, right now. It has helped, like Oman has helped with um, the release of some uh, political prisoners, American diplomats, and a bunch of things like that. So that could be a way forward in the sense that Oman has always been very neutral in the Gulf politics and the Gulf region. So maybe that would be a good mediator for the peace talks. I can agree with that. I mean, uh, Oman is part of the one of the six GCC countries. So they're with Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, but they've also had really good ties with Iran. So they, they can play a big role here. And again, I remember my point earlier, you know, consensus is usually the best path to, to, to a solution. So Oman can play a very important uh, role. And uh, just to bring a point to Alexandria about, you know, the current president, there's so much we've had to cover on uh, on Yemen. We didn't even mention that at when the war started in 2015, that the, the new president of Yemen had to actually flee to Saudi Arabia. So he's actually been... He's been actually controlling the country or administrating it from the Saudi capital. So, again, that's where Saudi has a lot. They can push him towards, you know, peace talks if they really want to do that. Again, they, ha they have the upper hand in trying to find a solution. Um, whether they want to, that's a different question in itself. Before the break, we, we were specifically um, talking about terrorism. And you mentioned that the the conflict in Yemen has effectively rendered the country as a breeding ground for terrorist organizations, uh, specifically um, the Islamic State and uh, the uh, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which I understand is is one kind of one element of Al Qaeda or one branch or whatever the term is for terrorist organizations. Uh, given the momentum for counterterrorism. Uh, policies and, and action uh, in Syria and Iraq with the Islamic State. Is there any ability to build on that momentum uh, to prevent the Islamic State or other terrorist organizations from getting a, a larger stranglehold in Yemen? Again, I think it goes back to consensus. The reason you're able to defeat it in Iraq is all sides, whether they like each other or not, we're working with the Iraqi government to be able to defeat it. Or again, we go back to Yemen. The president is in Liyadh, the Saudi capital. You've got United Arab Emirates backing the secessionist movement. You've got the Iranians backing the Houthi rebels. There's just too many sides right now. Um, it is important to note that you know Saudi Arabia likes to point out that they're fighting terrorists 
as they brand the Houthis um, as one of the reasons, but you know they're completely um, uh, silent on uh, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or or Daesh. So that's a, it's an important point to make. And and but another thing to to kind of um, not to take away from anything that the Houthi rebels might have done, but they kind of represent the Zaydi Shia, and they're almost they're between 25 to 45 percent of the Yemeni population, so at least a quarter to almost half. So you can't kind of ignore them and kill them all to death, you know, like you can with these other groups that are much smaller. The Houthis have always been very excluded from power, and this is also what led to the war, because in 2012, when the president resigned and the Hadi government was taken power, they basically excluded the Houthis once again. And then as they did that, the Houthis started taking uh, control of the northern territories and then al-Qaeda sort of joined and took control of more the east and the south and even right now they're mostly in the south and the east. And if we look to the future of what might happen in Yemen, what do you anticipate? Do you anticipate that there will be a clear resolution? And if so, what might that look like? Is it is it too early? Is it too too much to assume that there may be a situation where there the country splits um, between north and south and establishes two independent states, uh, or are there other other options on the table that 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 may be the end result of what happens in Yemen? I think a division of the country is quite probable. However, the South has most of the resources, so the Houthis are never going to let that go. Right now, they're controlling the capital, and they're not letting go of the capital until they have a compromise or some sort of political power. So there has to be some sort of consensus, as Hamza mentioned, and a coalition of different parties within Yemen if we want a resolution at all. So if Oman can step in and try to be a mediator between those different parties and with Saudi Arabia's interest and Iran's interest then maybe they can be a resolution. However, until the Saudi stop bombing, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think it's also important to know, I, I mentioned about the former president, you know, he was there for over three decades. He constantly said, I kept the country intact. And, you, and we're clearly seeing the divisions today. But again, that shouldn't take away anything um, from wanting to remove authoritarian leader. You know, no country should be able to depend on one man to be the state, to keep it together. So, you know, it's terrible the fact that we're seeing what's happening, but hopefully that can lead, you know, an effort to find true solutions, true foundation building between the different groups. Um, but as for splitting, I don't think, you know, anyone in the international community or the region has an appetite for new states. So as, as you know, as fragmented as some are. So then perhaps it's just about, as you mentioned, reconciliation as much as possible and trying to find at least some, some equilibrium or some stability. Um, because I, I have to imagine that regardless of, of what side you're on in a conflict like this, the fact that the population at large uh, is facing famine, is facing cholera, and that affects that affects everybody. Uh, that it's it's simply an unsustainable. I don't know. I I assume it's simply just an unsustainable uh, environment to operate in, and so something is going to have to change uh, eventually. Yeah, I agree, and I mean even with the secessionist movement, no one's going to want to see their brethren starve or suffer like they are. So, I mean, at least you have that's something to get people together. Is let's at least stop and clean clean up the mess here, and then maybe politically we can get to the negotiating table. But again, it's it's very tricky. I wish I, I don't have any solutions myself. But at least that's where Alexandria and I are kind of bringing up the humanitarian systems. Let's see 
what we can like again canada what can they do who can they pressure and maybe we can start from there because i don't know anyone with the solution there are never easy solutions in international affairs um i suppose that's that's just the reality um but uh, i think we'll leave it there hamza alexandra thank you so much for coming in and sharing your insight we really do appreciate you taking the time to participate on policy talks thanks for having us thanks thank you for listening to policy talks remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content this episode was made possible thanks to the support of the carleton university graduate students association The GSA represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University, and they offer a suite of resources and services to help graduate students make the most out of their school experience. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. And of course, I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Samran Roy, Kenneth Boddy, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch. And this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.